0: We've been experiencing great days as we are going through Paul's letter to the Colossians. I trust that you have been profited by our study thus far. I'm not necessarily going to give you a classic sermon this morning. I really just want to share with you some things that I see flowing out of this text and are very applicable to our own life and our own situation and our own culture, we live in a very strange time in human history. It's a time of great technological innovation and advancement, but also at the same time, while it seems that we are advancing very rapidly technologically, we are rapidly declining spiritually. There does not seem to be a correlation between the information, the organization, the knowledge, and the opportunity that we have achieved technologically to correlate that with the spiritual information, the spiritual maturity and growth that is so desperately needed in our land. You would assume, of course, that with increased knowledge and information and opportunity, That our culture would also expand its spiritual interests and appetites, but this is just not the case. Any you look around our land and you will see that there is a great spiritual birth. Someone said it this way, Each era in history brings with it first challenges that call for relevant apologetics and theological formulation in the church. In this era, pluralism, has become a dominant philosophy. Eastern religions have adopted a strong missionary stance. New Age thinking is making huge inroads into different spheres of Western society. And the evangelical movement, especially in the West, seems to have lost its cutting edge commitment to the radical truth of the gospel. Input. That person is right. It is the Sad truth of our day that while we seem to be growing in so many ways, we seem to be declining in so many ways as well. In that quote, the word was mentioned pluralism, and that is certainly a word that describes our culture. Let me see if I can define that word for you. Pluralism is the belief that no position has the right to take precedence over other positions. That's the mandate for today. Pluralism is the view that says that everybody's opinion is equally valid, that everybody's view is equally to be received and that nothing is to be said to be false and everything is, to, is said to be true in its own way. And that is true even within the religious world. No religion has the right to pronounce itself true and others false. That's the mandate of our day. You might have heard this term pluralism used as another term, political correctness. You might have heard uh, other terms like patriotism, the blending or the messing or the bringing together of all kinds of different philosophies and ideologies and speculations to form what is true for you or what is true for someone else. You may have even heard it said this way, The only absolute in our day is that there are no absolutes. That is the truth of our culture. It's a fact. And frankly, things were not a lot different when the Apostle Paul penned his letter to the Colossians. It was a very pluralistic culture. It was a very syncretistic one. It blended and messed all kinds of philosophies and ideologies and positions and commitments all into one or it's splintered off into all kinds of different ideologies with no one being said to be true as over against the other. And it is with this backdrop, beloved, that Paul changed the words that he does in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. You follow along as I read. Paul says, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have preeminence in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. What the Apostle Paul does here in this tremendous portion of Scripture is to speak of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's the title of our message in our series that we will be developing when we develop these passages of Scripture. The supremacy of Jesus Christ. And cutting through all of the pluralistic syncretistic blending of philosophies and ideologies and positions and thoughts and meanderings of the people of his day, Paul cuts through right all of that and he says that is not so. Jesus Christ is supreme. In the midst of conflicting and competing views of life and eternity, Paul says one person stands as supreme, and it is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this passage of scripture, Paul is going to point to Christ as the only possible answer to life itself, the only one designated by God the Father as the source. Of truth. Now, this passage of Scripture is a magisterial answer in our own day as well for all of the competing philosophies and ideologies and every possible religion concocted by man in order to answer the meaning of life. And that's why it is so important, Paul's words here in Colossians 1 for us today. Because frankly, the two societies are strikingly similar. In Paul's words, though they may be perceived by some as ancient and outmoded and dated, they are as relevant for us today as when he first penned these words. And, even going beyond the Apostle Paul, since he writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, this is God's answer to the pluralism of Paul's days and the pluralism of our own days. Here's how we could very easily break down this passage in order to understand its truth. There are two main outline points. You see it in your outline that is given for you in the Lord's Day bulletin. The first outline point is this. Jesus Christ is supreme over all creation. That is what Paul is endeavoring to teach us in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. He will tell us in those three verses that Jesus Christ is supreme over all creation itself. He will clearly show that even the creation of the entire universe, let alone men and women who are created in it, or angels, are subject, to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Right? Paul goes on in those three verses to tell us. Number one, Christ is the perfect image of the invisible God. He's the perfect representation of God himself. Secondly, Christ is the leader over all creation. He's inside. He's number one. Thirdly, Christ himself is the creator of all things. He ought to have the Number one position, he ought to be seen as the perfect image of the invisible God since he is the creator God himself. Fourthly, we see that Jesus Christ is supreme over creation because Christ is the ruler of all creation. Not only did he create the entire universe, but he rules it even now. And then, lastly, we'll see in our outline that Jesus Christ is the self-existent sustainer of all creation. He is the one that keeps it going in his great providence. We're going to see that as we move along in this text of Scripture. And then we see secondly in your outline that Jesus Christ is not only supreme over all creation, but he's also reigning supreme in the church. Paul teaches the supremacy of Christ and that it extends to the church as well in a number of ways in verses 18 to 20. In those three verses, he tells us, number one, that Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is not only in charge of the galaxy, he's also in charge of his body, the church. He's the head. Secondly, Christ is the cause of everything. Christ is the direct cause of everything that occurs in the church. Thirdly, Christ is the pioneer of all resurrected believers. All believers in Jesus Christ will one day be resurrected, and Jesus Christ is the pioneer of them all. Fourthly, Christ is said by Paul to be the preeminent Lord. The preeminent Lord. He is the one to have first place in everything. Then, fourthly, we, fourthly we see that Christ is the possessor of all God's fullness. God has chosen for all the fullness to dwell in Christ. And then lastly, Christ is the agent of God's reconciliation to sinners. The only way that sinners can be reconciled to God is if God reconciles himself to sinners and he does so through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is God's agent for that transaction. In effect, beloved, in this passage Paul gives us the theology of Christ's supremacy. This is good, solid doctrine. It is good stuff. It is right on. It tells us about Christology or the doctrine of Christ. And it tells us much about it. This passage is taught. It is loaded with theological truth. It's a wonderful portrait of our risen Christ. We don't apologize for studying and discussing pure theology, not because we want to study theology for theology's sake, but we want to study theology because it presents a correct understanding of who Jesus Christ really is, why and how the claim could be made that he is the supreme person of the universe, and how his supremacy affects our lives practically. That's what we're going to share together in these six verses. Now, before discovering the great riches of these verses, as we will share them together, this morning, before even getting into the text, I need to stop and do something with you. That's why I mentioned a moment ago, this is not a classic exposition of sermon. This is a theological lesson, a history lesson, a background lesson. Because before we get into the actual statements of Paul here in this text, I want you to understand the crucial background of this passage. Because if you don't understand the crucial background of this passage, you will really not understand the passage at all. Because the terms that Paul uses, the very phrases that he will employ to speak of our Christ in the way he does, cannot be understood unless we understand some of the specific theological issues that were going on in Colossus at his time. And... As we finish up this morning, I want you to understand how strikingly similar the background of what Paul was dealing with in Colossians is so very strikingly similar to our own culture in our own day. And as I trust the verses will take on new meaning for you as you understand the correct background, I trust that it will open up door upon door upon door of understanding for you to acknowledge your own culture and how to respond to it. So really, in essence, before we can even get into the outline that we have before you, I want us to talk about two main things this morning. That is, number one, the background of Colossians, and then the background for your own culture in your own day as we live in it. Number one, let's talk about the background in Colossians, and why Paul says what he says here. First of all, as I told you in the introduction when we began our series in Colossians, It is notoriously difficult to attempt to reconstruct exactly what was the main false teaching Paul was answering here in Colossians. It is difficult, very difficult, because Paul's words as he gives them to us in the text of Scripture are mainly a positive response to the person of Christ. He speaks of his supremacy, he speaks of his... He speaks of the things that are positive about the person of Christ and doesn't always let us in on that which was the false teaching of the day. Rather than taking the negative approach and dealing with the false teachers themselves and all that they're saying and doing, like he does maybe in Galatians or some other epistle that he's written to us, he takes to in Colossians the positive approach. He tells them, of course, in chapter 1, that he is very faithful and prayerful for the Colossians of believers, maybe even new believers. And maybe that's the reason why Paul doesn't go into great detail with regard to these false teachers. He tells them, I'm praying for you, and here's what I'm praying for, and then what he tells them is, I want you to worship Jesus Christ because he is supreme. Now, there are a few things that he does tell us in this epistle that gives us at least some evidence of what he's fighting. It's stance. It doesn't allow us to be dogmatic, but I think it does give us the opportunity to see some clues that will help us understand where Paul is coming from. They are mainly contained for us in chapter 2. We will study them in greater detail as we come to it, but at least enough now to understand and reconstruct what we might believe was the philosophy that Paul was dealing with. Now, it seems that Paul was informing and advising and counseling the Christians in philosophy because they had been invo- involved in a form of Judaism that had pluralistically and syncretistically been joined to the Greek philosophy of the culture around them. That's probably the best way that we can see what Paul was dealing with. Probably a form of Judaism with all of the rules and regulations and rites and rituals combining and messing with The Greek philosophy of the day. I'll show you what I mean by that. First of all, from what we can best recollect, Christians there in Colossi were being told by these religious leaders that they were still subject to unseen forces, probably angelic beings. And that somehow and in some way, combined with the Greek philosophy of the day, that these Judaizers were coming to these Colossian Christians, some of them may have even been Christians themselves these Jews, completed Jews, and they were saying that we're still subject to these angels. We get a bit of a hint of this when we look in chapter 2, in verses 18 and 19. Look at that with me. He says, this Paul, in chapter 2, verse 18, Let no one keep describing you of your child either the prize of salvation or the prize of a life in Christ, whatever prayer may be referenced in there, let no one keep the you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels. You see that phrase there, the worship of the angels? That is probably a reference to the fact that these Christians were being told that somehow and in some way their salvation in Christ was not yet complete. Or, that it was Christ plus a continued subjection to these angelic beings, these unseen forces. And Paul comes along and says, Don't let anyone disturb you by taking away your prize, that, that completeness in Christ, your life in Christ, by telling you that you must be involved in self-abasement and the worship of the angels. Taking his stand, he says, on visions he has seen. Inflated without cause by a fleshly mind. And not holding fast to the head of Christ. Not gripping and grabbing a hold of Christ in our fullness. He says, okay? you ought not to listen to these teachers because they're trying to, to pull you away from your completeness in Christ. Your maturity in Christ. Your Christ plus nothing mentality. Don't let them do it He says. It was also true apparently that these these teachers, and maybe even these demonic forces, these fallen angels, were working their work, maybe through human counterparts to these false teachers, and they were telling the Colossians not only that they had to subject themselves to these angels, but that they also had to stay away from certain foods, certain drinks. You'll notice that in chapter two, verse twenty. Paul says, if you have died with Christ, there's that completeness analogy again, to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to the such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? He says, with all the further things destined to perish with you, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. In other words, if you believe yourself to be in subjection to these angelic powers, these forces around you, why are you so quickly drawn away from what a pastor, my beloved son in the face, has taught you about your completeness in faith? And now you are subjecting yourself not only to them, but to what they are teaching, and that is, do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. And you are delighting yourself in this self-abasement as though By doing such things, you are going to make yourself more complete in Christ, more acceptable to Him, that your life with Christ will be better than if you were not to do these things. And these paganistic Judaizers, we could call them, were also attempting to hold these Colossian Christians to some ceremonial laws of their former Judaism, holy days. Seeing them as more sacred than other days. We see that Paul deals with that in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2. Notice, he says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to the food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And see, Paul, right there, tells us unmistakably. That the Judaism of the old covenant, the festivals, the new moons, the Sabbath days, and the food and drinks which God had so specifically laid down for the children of Israel had been abrogated; that they had been done away, because the shadow, which was what all of those things were pointed to originally, had come, and the shadow had come with the substance, even Christ. And Paul says when the substance is here, Jesus Christ, you don't need the shadow anymore. You don't need to observe those things. You don't need to have one day which is more sacred than another day. You don't need to have a festival or a new moon or food or drink to tell you that you are complete in Christ. It is Christ plus nothing. In fact, Paul makes the explicit statement that you are complete in Christ in verse 10 of chapter 2. And in him, you have been made perfect, complete, fully mature. In other words, once you have Christ, you don't need any of the other things that these people are teaching you because you're now complete in Christ. You have all that you have with Christ in order to be acceptable to God. In other words, what he says in summary is, you don't need legal ordinances, you don't need food regulations. You don't need Sabbath and New Moon observances. You don't need self-abasement. You don't need the worship of angels. You don't need visions, self-made religion, worldly philosophy, empty deception, traditions of men, elementary principles of the world, and the severe treatment of the body. And uses every one of those phrases to communicate that they don't need all of those things plus Christ. In fact, they need only Christ and none of those things. None of these things, says Paul, are essential for your life in Christ and for your spiritual work. In fact, they're not only not essential, but they could be very harmful and destructive to your spiritual life. Because if you try to use them in a way that more fully completes you in Christ, you're on a collision course. Paul's words here in Colossians 1 are these Christ is supreme over all things. Now you understand the background. That's about one for which Paul is telling these words. And you know immediately that you can begin to discern what he says in Colossians 1. I'll give you a few for next week. He says in verse 15 of chapter 1, For by him, that's Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And do you see that phrase there about those phrases, terms, Dominion, rulers, or authority in the Bible; those are terms that are used for angelic levels. Those terms are used for various levels to speak of angelic hosts, angelic rulers, kings, dominion, powers, authority. Now you understand what Paul means. He says, "Listen, not only are you not to worship angels, but did you know that you're to worship Christ?" He is the creator over all things, both visible and invisible, for the throne or dominions or rulers or You see, it meant something specifically to these Colossians. It meant something that they would have known quite well, and we need to understand exactly what they would have heard. Now, this is completely. Secondly, if we are to better understand the historical basis for Paul's words to the Colossians, and once we do, can we also use these words, use this context, to speak to our own day? I believe we can. We are seeing in our own day a very, very incredible, striking, eerie parallel between that which Paul wrote in our own day. If you don't believe me, just listen to a few of these things. Number one. If you were to go into a secular bookstore, say Walden Books or B. Dalton, even today, you would see shelves, if not an entire section, of the teaching of people on angels, right? Angels are really, really big in our time. People are writing about angels. There are movies about angels. There are series that are being done about angels. There is a lot of data out there on angels. Of course, most of it is entirely wrong and fictitious, but it is on angels nonetheless. I dare say that Paul would have come into our own culture and said, it's exactly what I told the Colossians not to do. The worship of angels. Secondly, Judaism. Judaism is alive and well. In our country, in our world, it is alive and well. It has its rights, its regulations, its rituals, its Sabbath-keeping, etc. If you have ever gone to Israel, you would know that Judaism, especially those of the Orthodox faith, are practicing their religion quite vociferously, quite technically, quite precisely. Judaism is alive and well in our days. And Paul would have said the same thing that he said to the Colossians, That you would say to Judaizers today. Here's a third one self made religion. Now, as we go through this list, you might begin to ask yourself the question how is it that some of these things that Paul speaks of here are seen in our own day? I just jotted down a few thoughts that I see very readily. When I think of self made religion, I obviously understand what Paul means by that, but I can see it very clearly in our own culture. One one aspect of self-made religion, for me, is when I turn on the television and do a little surfing by the cooker, I can see that there are numbers of people who are involved in the worship of the body. The worship of the body. In fact, the other day I turned on the, the the cable and I saw that there was an actual cable channel, which will probably tell you how up on I Island, there was is a cable channel called Sip TV. You see that? TV with Joke the Body or something like that. And it's amazing to me that the entire cable channel, everything that happens on that channel, just like it was a sports channel or a home shopping network or something like that, the entire channel is built around the worship of the body. In fact, as I listen to this Joke the Body fellow talk about this This issue of exercise, I realized that this wasn't just talking about exercise, this was talking about the worship of the body. He even talked about yoga meditation techniques that they were doing right then as they were exercising their body. I realized very quickly, this is a self-made religion. This is a religion. This is an entire world view. If you don't think so, just turn on some of these channels and listen to what they say. They have their own terminology, they have their own thinking, they have their own table channel, they have their own worldview. they have everything that makes a self-made religion. And that may not be as easy for you to pick up, but how about the cult? How about the occult? How about every ism and schism and spasm that there is in our culture? All of it is a self-made religion whether it's Mormonism with Joseph Smith or the Jehovah's Witness with Judge Rutherford or anything, the that one, see, wise niece, who's now deceased, praise the Lord. All of those things are involved in self-made religion. It is the worship of self. None of these men ever received anything from the Lord. There wasn't any angel, eye who revealed anything to Joseph Smith. It's all fabricated. It's all made up. And I'm sure the Apostle Paul, if he was here today, he would say to us, do not be involved in anything that is even closely akin to self-made religion. Here's another one, philosophy of life. You put that category up on the screen, and you say, what are some of the common philosophies of life, maybe as the Colossians dealt with it, and what is its contemporary version today? It's very easy for me. You see all these infomercials on television. One that comes out at you very, very readily is Anthony Robbins. Tony Robbins. That is an entire life and worldview. Just listen to the man speak. Especially as he speaks glowingly about himself. Anytime someone talks about themselves as much as he talks about himself, watch out. It is a self-made philosophy of life. He has an entire worldview about himself. Or Napoleon Hill, "Think take, take and go rich. That is a world view, folks. And if Paul were here today, he'd say, stay away from it. It will do you no good, only harm, spiritual. Or, to if, if Tony Robbins isn't communicative enough to you, how about L. Ron Hubbard in Dianetics? He's also dead, praise the Lord is a person who has an entire worldview about life, for Scientology. And there are actors and actresses who will stop at nothing to promote these things. And all of these things are a philosophy of life. These are the very things in our own culture if we would open up our eyes and see and discern and perceive are going on in our own day for which we must be careful. We must be discerning. How about another category, Interception, or the traditions of men? I'm going to step on a few toes here. But how about New Age medicine, holistic medicine, the worship of herbs and teas? There are people, even innocent Christians, unwitting Christians, who, by virtue of a very innocent approach to something with regard to a diet, or something with regard to their body, or some supposed theory of health, are now involved, hopefully none of you, involved in an entire world and life view that has its origin in the worship of the body or the worship of health. There are people who will stop at nothing on the latest fad, the latest theory, and they will spend far more time involving themselves in the, the understanding and the digestion of such things than they will reading the Word of God. And involving themselves in the teaching of the Word of God and the understanding of the Word of God and the application of the Word of God. However, these are the philosophies, the interdeceptions, the trickery of men in our own day. Alternative diets and all kinds of things that are ultimately blended together with someone's world and life view to come up with what we could call our present-day religious pluralism. You say, but it isn't religious. It is. It is because it is a world and life view. It is a view about life. It is a view about the body. It is a view about health. It is a view about money. It is a view about riches. It is a view about God, ultimately. And when we involve ourselves in it, we find ourselves exactly where the Colossians find themselves, and precisely where Paul says, "Worship Christ alone. He is the supreme one." As we close our time, I want to. Bring you very, very close to home. And some of the examples that I may have given you with regard to the perceptions of men, the principles of the world, the tricky, the crafty philosophies of life may not have actually applied to any of you, but maybe some of these things might. And I wanted to bring out these books. I hardly ever do this. I, I wanted you to know that I did not take any of these things out of context. These things can be read by yourself and you can look at these things. They're a very, very important words for us to know and to understand, and they provide the very backdrop for Colossians chapter 1. First of all, I pulled off my shelf this week a book by Adric Fernando called The Supremacy of Christ. Very good book, published by Crossway. And he talks a lot about this issue of religious pluralism. For all of the things that I gave you as examples a moment ago, some of you would say, yes, but I stay away from those things because I know all of those things are outside the church. All of those things are outside the pale of Christianity. Well, Fernando tells us very clearly that religious pluralism is literally keeping the globe. He tells us on page 22 these words. He's speaking of a kind of religious pluralism called inclusivism. Inclusivism. Inclusivism is a very, very big word that literally... Stand for the concept that ultimately everyone in the world will be saved, somehow and in some way. Or, at least, that everyone will have the full opportunity to choose Christ in and of their own will, even if some choose not Christ. This is what Fernando characterizes some of these teachings as being. He says, regarding some Roman Catholic theologians, that Inclusivism is gaining popularity in Protestant circles as well, following their Roman Catholic terms. He says, quote, Here, that is in the Protestant circles, salvation is viewed as being only through Christ. you say, so far so good. However, Christ could use other means to save than those that require the hearing of the gospel. That's Inclusivism. That's saying, we know that people need to choose Christ, but somehow and some way God must have a plan whereby ultimately even Christ will come along and say, but if you do this, you're in, even if it doesn't mean the requirement of hearing the gospel. He says this, Examples of such means are what in typical Roman Catholic language are called the sacraments of other religions. Roman Catholic theologian Carl Rahner described the saved people of other religions as quote anonymous Christians, unquote. And then this author, Ajax Fernando, says that even those who would call themselves evangelical Protestants, even those who would call themselves conservative evangelical Protestants and theologians, that they quote, see the possibility of salvation apart from explicit knowledge of the gospel of Christ. They see one's attitude of repentance and faith as a means that mediates salvation through the grace of God in Christ. In In other words, it's not the fact of faith and repentance because they may not in this life express such faith and repentance, but it is the attitude that they express ultimately that God will judge. And if their attitude toward this supreme being is a good one, then they're in. Fernando says, "...religious pluralism assizes a new idea of revelation." Over the years, Christians have understood Revelation as God's disclosure disclosure of truth to humanity. He did this generally in ways accessible to all people. For example, through nature and conscience, and specifically in the Scriptures and supremely in Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying is that the old traditional view is this, that God revealed through nature and conscience, that's Romans 1 and 2, himself to man. That's general Revelation. But that God went a step further And through special revelation, that's the word of God, and through the person of Jesus Christ, God has now commanded everyone to repent and believe. He says that's the way that we used to understand God's dealing with men, through revelation. He says, according to the new idea, truth is not disclosed to us, that's revelation, but is discovered by us through our experience. The writings of the different religions, whether Hindu, New Age, Muslim, or Christian are said to reflect different discoveries through experience of the one God. And then he gives an example. He says, I spoke once at a conference in Sri Lanka. He is a Sri Lankan. He's involved in mutual there. And he says, I spoke along with another speaker on the topic of Christian mission in Sri Lanka. This is a Christian mission conference. He says, the other speaker said that when a Buddhist came to him expressing a desire to become a Christian... He told him, quote, you have such a great religion. How do you want to become a Christian? Why don't you study your religion more carefully and be a better Buddhist? And, you see, that's religious pluralism. That says we're all ultimately going to get there. We just have to be ardent and dedicated and precise within the confines of our own religion. And when we ask, God will see our hearts and he will grant us that life. He says, dialogue has replaced apologetics and any religious encounter. Such encounter is said to involve everyone's meeting as equals, refusing to insist that one's own way is the only correct way. You see the pluralism speaking in? Everybody's way is the correct way. He says, once a church leader, speaking at the annual conference of my denomination, Fernando says that this man said, quote, we must take the word only out of the Christian vocabulary. End quote. Makes you want to think about what you're going to do in your own denomination, doesn't it? This book is a very helpful book because it helps us feel clear of the religious pluralism of the day. You say, well, that's Sri Lanka, that's something that's not necessarily uh, involved with where I am, or maybe the people that I respect. Let me share with you, as we close, this book by Peter Kress. Peter Kress. It's entitled, Epumenical Jihad. And this is a book Which is as its premise a call by this man, Peter Kraft, to bring all of the world's religions together to form a holy alliance, that is the ecumenical part of the title, a holy war against the common moral issues of the day. That's the meaning of the word is jihad, which is that Muslim term you know for holy war. Now, this man, Peter Kraft, was a former evangelical Bible teacher at Gordon College up in Boston, Massachusetts. And there was a time where he was asked to leave Gordon College because he had become a Roman Catholic. And when he had become a Roman Catholic, he began then teaching philosophy at Boston College, which is, as you know, a bastion of Roman Catholicism. And Peter Kraft is very, very close to home because he's written several books that are very, very popular and have been printed by University press. If we you were to look at university Press' catalog, you would see a number of books by Peter Cross written for the general run-of-the-mill Christians like you and me. Now, Peter Cross is writing this book, by the way, it's published by Ignatius Publications, which is a very famous Roman Catholic publisher. And here is the premise in Peter Cross' book. Now, I'm not making this up, and i show the book to you to show you that I'm not reading this out of context. He says this, God, I suggest, is working right now to deal with both problems, both problems being what he will describe as the ecumenical jihad. He is dealing with both problems, with the same stroke, which I will call ecumenical jihad. The age of religious wars is ending. The age of religious war is beginning. A war of all religions against men. The first world war of religion is upon us. What he's saying is this, that... We are going to band together as all religious faiths, and when we do, we're not going to have wars against each other. We're not going to turn all our, our efforts together as one entity towards the holy war, and that is the moral vices and the sins and issues of our day as we see them out there, whether they be abortion or euthanasia or infanticide or whatever they may be. He says we must do this if we're going to win the war. What is his strategy? He says this. The battle lines are obviously changing. No longer are Protestants and Catholics anathematizing each other. Relations with Jews and even Muslims are beginning to show signs of understanding and respect never before seen in history. Our hearts, if not our heads, are in fact being brought close together. And it seems that our divine commander's strategy, notice he's saying that Muslims and Catholics and Protestants and Jews all have the same divine commander is to bring this change about by confronting us with the increasingly clear and present danger of the common enemy, the new power of battle. And he says this. He says what he envisions is all of these people banding together. God has been using Satan to undo Satan. He has now allowed Satan to let loose upon the world a worldwide spiritual war. Which, by attacking not one religion, but all religions, is now uniting God-loving Catholics, Orthodox, Anglicans, and Protestants, and even Jews and Muslims, more powerfully than anything else in history has ever done. Then he says, there is ecumenical unity with other religions that do not know the God of Abraham. In other words, it's not just the Jews and the Christians and the Catholics who are now coming against moral evil, because they all served the one God, but now it's not just those who have one God, they're also those who have multiple gods. He says, Hinduism and Buddhism, for instance, many of the battlefields of the Great War reached this far. For instance, Hindus and Buddhists joined Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, and Muslim clergy in protesting designer dreams, for leading books of humanity and laboratories for experimenting on, for harvesting organs, or for manipulating and redesigning human nature itself. Then he says that this ecumenical jihad, this holy war that's, that's being banded together, is not just those of the religious persuasion, not just Jews and Catholics and Protestants and Muslims and Buddhists and Confucianists. It's also, he says, even atheists and agnostics. If they are of goodwill and intellectual honesty and still believe in objective truth and objective morality, are on our side in the war against the powers of darkness. Perhaps, he says, they can be called anonymous Christians. Atheists and agnostics? Anonymous Christians? They're going to be in heaven with us? He says, that in any case, they cannot be called warriors for the Antichrist. If they seek the truth, they will find it eventually. Of that we are assured by Christ himself. Unfortunately, there's no verse mentioned there. They may not yet be married to God but they are not deliberate divorces either. He says, If we will work and fight and love in action side by side with our Protestant and Catholic and Orthodox and Jewish and Muslim neighbors, we will come to perceive something we did not understand before. What will it be? We do not yet know. We will be able to perceive it only by working the works of love and war, not by speculating. And then all the way to the end of his book, I wish... You could read all of it because he has some imaginary dialogue, although he said he received it from a vision. And he says the vision was as real as truth is real, which is exactly what Paul says he can't do in Colossians chapter 1, not on visions he has seen. He says that this vision was an imaginary dialogue between Buddha, Confucius, and Moses. And that ultimately that dialogue that Peter Christ had with these three entities was in heaven itself and they're all three there. And this is what he says at the end. This is what we must do. This is the methodology for the ecumenicals you have. Post-volunteer work. Running for local political office, especially school boards. Membership in organizations like Operation Rescue that may land you in jail. Membership in former church-approved organizations like Opus Day, Third Orders, or Knights of Columbus. Seek out spiritual friends in other religions. Talk together of your common faith and respectfully of your different faiths. Pray for each other's clergy and leaders. Exchange visits to each other's religious services. In other words, if you're a Christian and you worship at a Bible church, you need to go to the local Buddhist temple and, and exchange views and talk with them, but not to try to convert them, he Pray together. If you're all Christians, study the Bible together. The point of this is not a sneaky program to convert non-Catholics, but simply to understand and love each other. You think that's a dangerous thing to do? Your faith must be pretty weak. If you think that's a worthless thing to do, your love must be pretty weak. Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, who have almost everything in common, Catholics and Protestants, who have much in common, Catholics and Jews and Muslims, who have at least the same God and commanding officer in common, the soldiers in this battle have better get to know and love each other if they're going to fight together. And then he ends by saying, reschedule and reprioritize your life to allow at least one or two of the following each day, Mass, Eucharistic Adoration, Bible reading, family prayers, the rosary. Consecrate your life to the immaculate heart of Mary. She is the one who will win this war. She is the one, as the Bible says, who triumphs over Satan. She is the one who all the early church fathers called the new Eve. She is the woman clothed with the sun who will destroy the dragon, the devil. And then he closes by saying, we are at war. A spiritual war. A jihad. Not between religions, but between good and evil. Between all religions and men. In forging wartime ecumenical alliances, we are encouraged by the church to learn from other religions. Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, and Moses can all remind us of precious but forgotten treasures in our own religion. Our Protestant-separated brethren, that's us, have a different theology but not a different religion. And then lastly, surprisingly, the distinctively Catholic devotion to the Eucharist and to Mary may prove to be the seed of victory in ecumen- ec- ecumenism and in the cultural war. You say, but I don't relate to that. you are run in catholic I'm not. Listen to the endorsements on the back. Peter Crest is one of the premier apologists in America today, witty, incisive, and powerful. On the front lines in today's culture war, Frost is one of our most valiant intellectual warriors saying such persons. This racy little book from another endorsement opens up a far-reaching theme. With entertaining insight, Kep looks into the attitudes, alliances, and strategies that today's state of affairs requires of believers. Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox alike need to convert Peter Kep's vision of things, preferably a discussion together. What if he is right? question 9, signed July Catholic. You see, beloved, this is where we are. This is where we are in our world, and the, the more quickly we are discerning, and that we say of ourselves, these things must not be so. I read a pre-publication copy of G.I. Copper's response because he's being severely criticized by this in a journal that kept coming. And I read it, brilliantly written and deadline in my opinion. Because it is not dealing with the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's not saying that Jesus Christ is reigning supreme. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he will share his glory with no other. And when we think of Christ, we don't think of Buddha, we don't think of Confucius, we don't think of Muhammad, we don't even think of Moses. We think of Christ. And we worship Christ alone. And that's Paul's words to the Colossians, and that's his word to us as well. Let's say These are words which are hard to hear, but words in which we must hear. There is no second chance gospel. There is the gospel of Acts 4 12 that poor prayer, but un- under the name of Jesus Christ and no other is whereby we must be saved. Lord, I pray for these who are supposed to be the leaders. And the evangelical glance of the church and what he seems to be deep in the thinking that this ecumenical jihad is even worth dialoguing about. The question is not what if Peter Crest is right, but what if he is wrong. And it's because it is a wrong-headed and non scriptural basis of conclusion, we must echo the words of Paul himself, that Jesus Christ is preeminent in all things, he reigns supreme, and he will share his glory with no other. And we pray that you would salute us minds of discernment, perceiving that which is true as over against that which is false so that we might glory in the cross where all are excluded except those who come in God's sovereign design. I pray that through this message, this congregation, as they read and listen and look at all things that are around them, they would understand that Paul is speaking valiantly to us today. And as he does, they will be obedient to His message. And they the be innocent. the the in Christ. clean. And